Stephen, who stood out among the believers for the way God's grace was at work in his life and for his exceptional endowment with divine power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose from some who belonged to the so-called synagogue of former slaves, Members from Syrian, Alexandria, Sicilia, and Asia entered into the debate with Stephen. However, they couldn't resist the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly enticed some people to claim, we heard him insult Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the legal experts. They caught Stephen, dragged him away, and brought him before the Jerusalem council. Before, excuse me, before the Jerusalem Council, before the council, they presented false witnesses who testified, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. In fact, we heard him say that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and alter the customary practices Moses gave us. Everyone seated in the council stared at Stephen, and they saw that his face was radiant, just like an angel's. It's the word of God. Thanks be to God. Claudette Colvin was a witness. You probably don't remember her name. Uh, I think there's a slide with her face. On March 2nd, 1955, Claudette was a 15-year-old girl in Montgomery, Alabama, and she sat down on a bus until they dragged her off. This was, of course, a familiar story. If I told it to you without the dates or uh, names, you would probably think that I was talking about Rosa Parks. She had a similar incident nine months later uh, that gave birth to the Montgomery bus boycotts, right? It took those nine months, I think, to uh, gestate young Claudette's witness, right? So this 15-year-old Claudette had this powerful prophetic act that didn't come out of nowhere. It was kind of improv off of an old script that she'd been learning at church. They had Black History Month at her church, so she was hearing all of these stories. So when it came time for Claudette to act, she felt like she wasn't alone. In interviews, she said she didn't have to muster her own strength because she said, I felt like I had Sojourner Truth on one shoulder and Harriet Tubman pushing down on the other, and I wasn't going anywhere. They said, sit down, girl, and I was glued to my seat. This young teen then recalls as an older woman how she remembers the precise sound of the click of the jail cell. And how when that happened, fear and kind of reality rushed in and she responded by praying the Lord's Prayer and Psalm 23 over and over and over. Her witness was a thoroughly Christian kind of witness. It wasn't wrapped up in indoctrination, but in imagination that the God whose kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, the God who would walk with her through the valley of the shadow of death, or at least through the Montgomery jail cell, 
is, was, and would be the God of liberation for her and for all people. The God who frees people from slavery and bondage, from oppression and fear. Claudette's family pastor, the Reverend H.H. Johnson, bailed her out. And he said, Claudette, I'm proud of you. Everyone prays for freedom. We've all been praying and praying, but you're different. You want the answer next morning. And I think you just brought revolution to Montgomery. And he's saying this nine months before Rosa and before everything that that happened after. Young Claudette didn't wait. She didn't stand asking, can I get a witness? She stood up, or more accurately, she sat down and asked herself, can I be a witness? Can I be a witness? So in a courtroom, a witness talks under oath. We've seen what these witnesses look like. There's not nearly as many courtroom dramas as there were when I grew up. There was Matlock and Perry Mason and all of these things, and then Law and Order a little later. So everyone feels like they know all of the procedural notes and all the drama. Like, uh, I I think of Tom Cruise, the JAG lawyer, uh, interviewing Jack Nicholson and can't handle the truth, you know? There's not nearly as many witnesses uh, in, in fiction as there are, in, it seems like, in reality these days. But a witness under oath, under threat of legal recourse, tells the truth about something, or at least they should. Uh, a witness tells the truth even when we can't handle the truth. A witness tells what they know with their eyes, but also in their bones. So let's fix that vocabulary word that some of us have grown up with about what it means to witness. We've got to put away the things about tracks and tricks and religious witnessing. To witness in our faith is to tell someone about Jesus based on what we've been and what we've seen, what we've known, what what we can bear witness to, to, to lay out a schema of salvation with the hope to include them in this story. Sometimes we can fear that our telling of this story is a little reductive, and it probably will be, because this story is way bigger than us, and so our telling might just be a little part of it. It might be a little simplistic. How could it not be? Our witness tells this big story in a truthful and hospitable way, trying to bring people into the story. So our Acts reading, as we've been journeying through Acts this summer, the story of the common spirit in the early church features Stephen, and he is the first post-Jesus martyr of this fledgling early church. And this, did I say Peter? I've, I've been saying Peter all week doing this, and I can't, tells the story of Stephen. Stephen. Uh, just Autocorrect my Peters throughout the sermon to Stephen is what I mean. We've been talking about Peter for like two months. Stephen must have his day, and today is that day. So the Stephen story is like a hinge in Acts. After Stephen, the persecution kind of ramps up. Not just, not just being hassled like Peter and gang, but, but actually being persecuted, being lynched, 
as Jesus was. Stephen's speech takes up a lot of space. It takes up all of chapter 7 of Acts. And then afterwards, there's this movement. If, if we've been concentrated in Jerusalem now, there's movement in Acts because people scatter. They're not centralized in Jerusalem. They, they've, they've begun to go out and bear witness. And it may have started out of fear, but now it's spreading and sharing the good news. It's creating these small little communities within communities, these micro-communities of intimacy and hope all over the world and all throughout the Roman Empire. And this is not a small or safe thing to develop these little micro-communities in a Roman Empire because their, their proclamation was Jesus is Lord, which implies that Caesar is not. So to do this is not safe and it's not even necessarily nice to a to an, an empire that doesn't look kindly on this good news. So who was Stephen? Who was Stephanus anyway? He's not in our gospel accounts. He, he wasn't one of the 12. He only really shows up by name right before this dramatic fatal scene as he's one of the deacons who gets picked to alleviate the practical injustice of the Hellenistic widows not being well served by their budding multi-ethnic church that didn't really know how to be a multi-ethnic church. Pastor Andre talked about this, um, at the, the, the picking of the seven to serve as deacons, the first deacon board of the early church, and Stephen was one of those deacons. By his name, we assume that he's a Hellenistic Jew. He's sort of a hybrid guy. He knows the Jewish story. It's his story, but he, he probably dreams in Koine Greek instead of Hebrew. He'd make perfect sense to step in and serve. And as the little caption says, he, he was well known amongst these deacons for, for the, the grace of God in his life and for the deeds he was doing. He was of, he was close to, he was responsive to the suffering of his people. He knew their pain, he spoke their language, and he, he knew the practical brick-by-brick brick building that intimacy requires in this new multiracial family. This family that once wasn't a people and now is a people. One new humanity. So then there's that speech, and we didn't get into chapter 7, but go this week and, and read Stephen's speech. It, he tells this sprawling story of God's pilgrim people, from Abraham and Jacob to Joseph and Moses, and it's replete with confrontations with Pharaoh and burning bushes and rejected prophets and wilderness tabernacles. Stephen was going to shoot a shot here. He knew he had one speech, and he was going to give it all. They all must have been kind of leaning in, sometimes maybe even nodding as he told a story that was familiar to them, and, and, and sometimes they thought they knew where it was headed. He had several chances to kind of clip and elide this story and get out safely to curtail his witness, to just stand up and to get off the bus, right? But Moses and Elijah, it seems, were pushing down on, him, on Stephen's shoulders. He ends up with this kind of trapdoor statement after this long story about God's people. 
at the Sanhedrin who were continuing this long tradition of prophet killing were kind of missing the point to the glory of God. That, 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 was, his, that was his punchline, and they didn't like that. They couldn't take it anymore. They, uh, it says they plugged their ears and they started screaming so that they couldn't hear what Stephen was saying. Sounds like they were in a little bit of denial. They, dr- they, they had to drown him out before stoning him to death. And as he was being killed, Deacon Stephen, with a, a face shining like Moses, they thought he was anti-Moses. And meanwhile, his face looks like Moses. It's ironic and beautiful and so sad. And then he, he, so he's embodying Moses, and then he embodies Jesus as he mimes Jesus' last words from the cross. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing, God. They think they're on your side, but they are not. Stephen was accused of being heretical, of being unpatriotic, because those two things were kind of the same. To relativize the temple was to relativize God's presence among and God's blessing on God's people. It's a dangerous prophetic vocation to call into question a nation's holiness to suggest that we're not always on God's side and vice versa. You start saying stuff like this, and you'll get pegged as a false witness. It might even get you killed. So, following Stephen's death, quote, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and many were scattered. There's an interesting little note that foreshadows so much. It says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged both men and women and put them in prison. This is, of course, the Saul that would become Paul later in the narrative. A church destroyer before he was a church planter. Stephen's witness seems to be kind of the the moment before the movement, in the same way Claudette's was the moment before the movement. That, that, That... that seed that gets planted that grows into something that no one could have anticipated. So friends, this is all interesting, but where does it all cash out for us here? Where, where do these stories of Claudette and Stephen, they're surely inspiring, but what do they mean for us bearing witness in 2021 in the neighborhood? I think a few, a few things. I think first, witness... Our ability to witness and our identity as witnesses flows out of where we are and who we are. Our witness flows out of where we are and who we are. First, it's important to recognize that both of these witness accounts happen in places, named places. Stephen's in Jerusalem, Claudette's in Montgomery. Those places are not incidental or accidental to either one of their stories. Jerusalem is the center of the universe, so much so that in in the Hebrew imagination, in the first century imagination, you always go up to Jerusalem no matter where you're coming from. Jerusalem is the pinnacle. 
in, in Jerusalem also becomes, in the Acts story, the, the springboard for the spread of Stephen's message, the spread of the early church. Montgomery also becomes the, the locus of the civil rights message. Montgomery, if you've ever been there, has so much larger of a footprint in our, in our mythos and in our, our history than it actually is. It's a pretty small place, but it, it, is this, it looms so large. I love um, how uh, if, you go to, if you go to Montgomery, all, like every little place is significant for some reason, someone that sat there or something that happened there. Go to Montgomery sometime. And who each of these people are was not incidental. I, lo I, I love the tradition that holds that St. Stephen is the patron saint of brick masons. There's like a blue collaredness to that and kind of a dark symmetry. You know, the first time we were introduced to Stephen, he has hands laid on him and, and then the second time we see Stephen, they put hands on him to drag him away. He's, he's laying bricks and performing manual labor and serving with his hands, and then he's having rocks thrown at him. There's this dark symmetry. And then for, uh, <coughs> for Claudette, she's a student. She's a teenager, and she's doing what any good student is supposed to do. She's applying her learning. These two witnesses grew out of their places and their lives that were already happening. They, they, their witnesses uh, happen in, in such a way that means that we don't have to go anywhere else to be witnesses. We don't have to become anyone else to bear witness to Christ's kingdom in this common spirit. We don't have to go anywhere else. We don't have to be anyone else to be witnesses. Witness happens for us at the kitchen table and at the bus stop. Witness can happen at City Hall, but it can also happen at Food Lion. Each moment has the potential to be the moment before the movement. And none of these moments, even if a movement doesn't follow, none of these moments are insignificant or unseen or unheard or wasted. To quote, uh, Shaniqua Walker Barnes, to watch for God, which is part of our witness, to watch for God means that we dream with God. We are aware of reality, yet we do not allow what is to constrain our vision of what ought to be. We watch knowing that God, the three-in-one, also watches. Just as God did with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, God sees, God hears, God provides. And this is the basis for our witness in all these hidden places of our daily life. So witness flows out of who we already are and where we already are. I think another part of our witness is that witness happens in the middle of our lives. In the midst of the quotidian and in the middle of many life transitions for us. It doesn't have to be dried cement, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's on the way, it's in the middle. So often we stand around asking for witnesses. We want wise counsel, wise guides, mentors, from uh, mentorship from others. And it, it was a, a couple years into planting Oak Church that I realized that, that when you stand around waiting for 
mentors, you're often missing out on the fact that you uh, are being positioned to possibly mentor someone else. Uh, Rach and I planted this church and, and it was about two years in and we realized like, there's no one that much older than us here. So we, m we probably are the mom and dads to some extent. And thankfully God has sent some, some mom and dads, including my actual mom and dad here. Uh, but, but, but this also comes as, as you grow older, as you, as you come through, uh, through school or through college or, or after that, where you start, to, you start to map your current age onto those significant moments in your life. And, and this happened to us the other day when we realized that we are the same age as these really significant mentors in our life were when they were making such an impact on us. And, and it causes you to, to remember and to, to be reminded that, that you are in a position to witness, even if you're in the middle. Even if you feel like you need the mentor, and you probably also do, you can be a mentor to someone else. So we, we witness, we, we bear witness in the middle. You have and you are being given everything you need to bear witness right now in the middle. What you currently have, even if it feels incomplete, even if it feels unhelpful, even if it feels like all the tools in your toolbox aren't tools that anyone needs, like the weird star screwdriver and some of those other tools that you get from Ikea, like those are helpful for someone else. They're actually potentially a gift for someone else. So don't wait and don't deprive offer and receive freely. That's how this economy happens. It, it's all a gift, and w your gifts can be a gift to someone else just as their gifts can be a gift to you. So our witness happens in the middle, and it sometimes even surprises us um, that we uh, can be witnesses. Lastly, all these stories that, that we've talked about strike us as like heroic instances of witness, like heroic in the extreme. Claudette was the moment before the movement that became the Montgomery bus boycott that is in all of our textbooks or should be. And, and Stephen is the first martyr, the guy, right? But friends, witness need not be heroic. That's, uh, I don't even think that they were thinking that their witness was that heroic when it was happening. In fact, I think that's what makes stories like Claudette's all the more ins inspiring rather than like starting the moment before the movement by like marching on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or facing dogs and fire hoses. Her story is heroism by sitting. We've been studying Ephesians this summer and we just wrapped up this week with Ephesians 6. And I can't help but draw uh, comparisons on the uh, final chapters, uh, it's like the finale is this talk of the full armor of God. You probably had a camp t-shirt or a poster that had the full armor of God, right? And there's this elaborate outfit in the Lord with, you know, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for the gospel of peace and a shield of faith and a helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And this is all macho and all, except for the clever spin by Paul that all of this armor equips us to stand and pray. <laughs> not, to, 
attack, not to charge the hill, not to defend, not to take the country back for Jesus, but to stand firm in the struggle and to pray. Not very heroic (laughs) in the way we often think of it. Our witness will often have us all dressed up to stand and pray. Of course, and and we're about to close, but uh, in this past week, the big news, it's already kind of sprinted through the news cycle, this is old news now, is the witness of Simone Biles, right? In the Olympic Games, everyone had a take earlier this week about Simone Biles. And her, I'll contend, Tokyo witness was not the heroism of yet another Olympic gold medal, but her witness was the wisdom to, to show that she had nothing to prove. There was a wisdom to that witness. There was a courage to know what needed to be done. I think pulling herself out for someone uh, as accomplished as her and as talented as her was way harder of a decision than staying in and risking it, right? It takes a lot of courage to not do. (laughs) And I think there was also a trust and a hospitality in her witness of making room for her teammates, Suni Lee in particular. So we look around at all the witnesses around us, and we have to actually be kind of creative and kind of intent and have the Spirit's eyes and ears to see and hear. Sometimes witnesses don't say what we think they might. (laughs) You can come get them. It's fine. (laughs) What do you have to say? Sometimes these witnesses don't have the voice we might expect them to have. (laughs) be assured though around us is a great cloud of witnesses so to stand around begging can I get a witness is like standing in the middle of a rainstorm saying can I get some wetness right like we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses God has given us everything we need it's just up to us to open ourselves up to the ways the spirit is working to attend to still small voices and stirring loud voices and otherwise peculiar voices that are bearing loud witness right in our midst. Because a witness is not always a hero in the most obvious ways. Jesus was not our savior and hero in the most obvious ways. But the good news Jesus is Lord. The good news is Jesus, the faithful witness, is working in our midst. Is working in us, is working through us, is talking to us, is working in spite of us, and is calling us to bear witness in the truth. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for all the witnesses you put around us, and we thank you for the ways that you call us to bear witness, that our testimony might be truth, that we uh, might bear in our bodies your good news, that we might trust you, that we might um, trust that you'll give us words, We might trust that your spirit is making us into the type of people whose lives 
um, evidence, your new life, your lasting life, your durable life that needn't fear. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.